It's good to see everyone this morning. Thank you all for being here. If you'd like to be turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, we will be reading there in just a moment. We um, often hear lessons about the Good Samaritan, and rightly so. We can see so much teaching in that lesson, and, and hear in our Lord's uh, teaching there what it takes to be uh, truly a neighbor, and to have compassion on, on each other, and good lessons there. This morning I want to talk about the Good Centurions. Maybe a lesson that you haven't heard before, or uh, perhaps not in this context, but in the New Testament we read of uh, several centurions that are talked about, and quite honestly, they're talked about very favorably. So this morning I want us to look at uh, those men. Uh, we're going to look at the ones that are spoken of uh, in, in somewhat detail. There's some other instances where, there, where centurions are mentioned in passing. Um, and there's some overlap in, in the gospel accounts, but we're going to look at uh, some examples here of centurions that are spoken of in the, in the New Testament, and we're going to see some, some very good qualities about these men. And then we're going to make some application, as we always do. So there's some good centurions that are mentioned in the New Testament. I want to first talk about uh, what exactly a centurion is. You're probably at least have an inkling of an idea, probably no, but a centurion was a professional officer in the Roman army. Uh, he would have commanded some hundred men or so, approximately, and thus that's where the name centurion comes from. You can see the word century in there. So when you, when you hear centurion, you can, you can hear that, that word century, which means a hundred. So a centurion was an officer in charge of roughly a hundred men. Now there are also some senior centurions that could have been uh, in charge of more men. They could have more men in their command. And, and that would be spoken of as them leading or commanding over a cohort. And that word's going to be important as we go, go along, but just remember it for now. So not only was it, could you be a centurion, but you could be a senior level centurion. We have ranks in the army and in the Marine Corps, I'm sure Russ could, could enlighten us a little bit more about that. But as you go up, you're in charge of more and more men. So this is what a centurion was. He was an officer and he was in charge of men. One thing about a uh, centurion I found interesting as researching this, this is a, an engraving of a, of a famous Roman centurion. I forgot his name. It's not important. Um, but a symbol of authority that they, they carried there was this vine staff. It was a staff... Uh, that was uh, made to look like inter interwoven, interwoven vines. And with that staff, they can discipline people. They can beat people. That's what we should really understand. Um, even some Roman citizens that were protected from, from these Portian laws, um, Roman citizens uh, were exempt from being publicly beaten without proper um, due, or due process without being held accountable, without going through some kind of a, a procedural process, a lawful process. So Roman citizens weren't uh, subject to that. And that's going to be important in our study a little bit later as well. 
But centurions did have some authority above even that, that sometimes they, they might exercise that authority and use that staff not only as a symbol of their authority, but to use it as an implement for discipline. So with that in mind, let's talk about some centurions that we, that we find in the New Testament. And I want to approach this from the idea of uh, looking at the characteristics that they display. And the first one we can look at is um, the idea of, of being faithful. So if you're there in Matthew chapter 8, Brad read this for us. We're not going to read the whole text again. But I think you remember, and certainly from Brad's reading, reminded you about a centurion coming to the Lord. And he had a sick servant, and he wanted Jesus to heal him. And it says there, as, as Brad read, he, the, the centurions said come, uh, or he wanted Jesus to heal uh, his servant. And Jesus said, okay, I will come to your house and I will heal him. And the centurion said, no, you don't have to do that. You can just speak and it will, it will be done. And he says there in verse 9, For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. So the centurion says, look, I, I know that all, I have to, all you have to do is speak it, and it will be so. There's no need for you to come to my house. And notice what Jesus says about, about this man in verse 10. Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Now isn't that saying something about this man? Because, see, what he recognized, this centurion recognizes, he recognized the power and the authority that Jesus had. He recognized he didn't have to come to his house and do anything laying on of hands, and Jesus could have done that. And we have many examples in, in which Jesus touches blind man's eyes and he's healed, or he, he makes a salve and he puts it on their eyes and they're healed. He does it in various ways. But what's important in understanding all that is Jesus has the power to do it. No matter what way he decides he's going to, he has the power to do it. And so, verse, 15, uh, verse 11, he says, And I say to you that many shall come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. See, in recognizing the, the, the faith in this man, and, and, and not to mention in Luke's accounting of this, we, we know a little bit more about this centurion, that, that he actually helped build the synagogue there in Capernaum. So he was highly regarded amongst the Jews there in Capernaum. He was a man of character, it seems. And the Jewish people there liked him, had great respect for him, he, and, and him assisting in building the synagogue. But back to verse 11, he says that many shall come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does that mean? It means he recognized the faith in this man. And he recognized that it's not just the children of Abraham that are going to come under the law of Christ, but the law of Christ is going to be available to all men. And this is indicative in what's being said here. Not such faith in all of Israel. You see, the Jews relied heavily upon their, uh, their lineage in improving who they were, improving what their faith in God was. Well, well I am from this tribe and from this lineage, and that makes me faithful to God. New Testament teaching tells us that those that are faithful to God and do His will that are to be called God's children. 
And this is something he recognized in this man. And understand also this, that this is the, the ushering in of the Gentiles. The ushering in that the Gentiles, not just the Jews, the Jews first, but that also the Gentiles will be brought under the law of Christ. Look over in Ephesians 2 for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> Paul speaks about this here in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning of verse 11. He says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by those, uh, the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at one time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See, that describes the Gentiles before the law of Christ, before the time when Jesus would come in and make salvation available to all men. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember what Jesus said there? They would come from the, from the east and the west and they would sit at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what Paul's talking about. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who made into both groups into one and broke down by the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. See, that's one aspect of, of Jesus that we sometimes overlook is the bringing together of the Jew and the Gentile and making them into one. And that is those who are obedient to God are to be called children of Christ, children of God, excuse me. Those are the ones who are worthy to be called that. Those who practice and obey God, those are the ones who are children of God, not just through our family lineage. Jesus recognized that in this particular centurion, his faithfulness. It's another characteristic of centurion, and that is respect. Look in Luke chapter 23. Again, we have other gospel recordings of this centurion, but we want to look here at Luke. You probably remember this one if you don't remember any, any of the others. This is the one that was present there when our Lord was crucified. In Luke chapter 23, in verse 44, beginning, it says, And now when the sixth hour, it was about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, the sun being obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And this is the very end of our Lord's life, when he's given up his spirit there on the cross. Verse 47, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Now, picture, and I know it's difficult, the scene here of our Lord being put to death at the hands of men having been scourged, 
having been beaten so badly, the marks on his back opened up his skin, the crown of thorns on his head, the nails driven through his hands and his feet, and hung there for public humiliation to slowly die. Luke records this, and he says that Jesus says, Father, into thy hands I commit thy spirit. And what the centurion says here in verse 47, he saw what happened. He began praising God. Now, why did he do that? He recognized something that was taking place here. He was respectful of what was taking place. And he said, certainly this man was innocent. Matthew and Mark's accounting add that the centurion said that this man was the son of God. That's powerful. It's powerful that this man recognized in all the events that were taking place and this man hanging on a cross, he recognized that he was the son of God. And he had respect for that. He says he began praising God and he says this man was innocent. He recognized that the charges brought against our Lord were, were false and they were just a means to be able to put him to death. But he had the respect. And he recognized the crucified Christ. He recognized in all the events that were taking place and the Jesus going to die on the cross, he recognized that that truly was the Son of God. Over in John chapter 20, a familiar passage there when, when, when our Lord is dealing with Thomas. We sometimes call doubting Thomas. How Thomas said, I'm not going to believe Jesus is risen from the dead until I, I can see him, put my hands in, the, in his wounds. And Jesus appears to him, and that's exactly what took place. In John chapter 20 and verse 28, Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. You see, when, when Thomas was able to physically touch and see and touch Jesus, that's when he made that declaration. He saw the, glorif the, the crucified Christ. And we also know there in verse 29, Because you have seen me, have you believed? You see, Jesus recognized that there are some who, seeing Christ, and we see in, in the appearances after his resurrection, about those who believed in him at that point. And we see this, this uh, centurion seeing Jesus being put to death and recognizing that he was indeed the Son of God. And of course we know what Jesus says there, Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. We have the benefit of seeing and, and being able to read all these accounts, not seeing it firsthand, but reading them and knowing who Jesus Christ was. And we're blessed because of it. And there are also those in that day that saw the Lord being put to death. And that included this centurion. And he recognized and respected who Jesus was as a result. Another characteristic about some of these centurions is that we see honor in their actions. Look over in Acts chapter 22. Remember, these are professional soldiers, but they have a sense of honor and duty, at least the ones we read about here in Scripture. In Acts chapter 22, uh, remember that back in chapter 21, Paul has made it to Jerusalem and he's been seized in the temple. And this begins his uh, being incarcerated eventually in Rome. This is all the events that will play out. In chapter 22, he's given a defense before the Jews here about what he has said. 
And if you look there in verse 21, and he said to me, and this is Paul recounting um, the things that have taken place, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This was the Lord's commissioning of Paul and what he would do. In verse 22, this remember he's before the Jewish council here, and they listened up to this point, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. You see, they were ready to put Paul to death. If you come down to verse, um, well, let's just keep reading. Verse 23, and as they were crying out and throwing out their cloaks and tossing dust in the air, the commander ordered them to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason they were shouting against him in that way. And when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Remember what we said back there about the, about the laws of Roman citizens. If you, it was unlawful for you to beat a Roman citizen without proper cause and without a trial. And so as they're getting ready to do this, Paul tells them, are, are you prepared to do this to a Roman citizen? In verse 26, And when the centurion heard this, he went out to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do, for this man is a Roman? You see, in the, in the midst of this, as Paul's telling this, there's a centurion that recognizes, and he's going to go on to tell them about who Paul is, and they're going to, they're going to stop what they're doing. But in this centurion, we see a sense of honor. That he indeed recognized that, at the very least, we've got to abide by the law. And Paul's a Roman citizen. We can't beat him without proper cause. So in this little example here, we see an example of honor. Look over a couple of chapters in chapter 27. Again, this is, is Paul is, is making his way to Rome to be uh, incarcerated there. Chapter 27 uh, talks about the, the voyage that's going to take him there. And there's, there's detail in here about a shipwreck. Um, in verse 11, we made mention, it's made mention of a centurion that's persuaded by the captain of the, of the boat that they should continue on their journey even though it's getting late in the season and the winds and the, and the weather's going to be bad. They should probably harbor here until the weather's passed. But the centurion listens to the pilot and the captain of the ship and they go ahead and, and make their way anyway and they wind up indeed being shipwrecked. And Paul tells them that they're going that they're going to lose the cargo and everything else, but everybody else is going to survive. So they indeed run aground. The ship is being torn apart. If you come to verse 43 of chapter 27, uh, back up to 42, and the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, that none of them should swim and escape. See, they had some prisoners here. They were entrusted to this centurion. And so as they're running aground, um, the, the, the soldiers want to put them to death so that they're not held accountable for them. And the centurion steps in here and does the honorable thing. Verse 43, he says, But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard. So the centurion here steps in and does the honorable thing. These were men of honor and duty. And while we see them... First of all, this centurion shouldn't have never been uh, uh, agreeable to take this journey. When the time came, he would stepped in and did the right thing. One other quality about centurions that we want to look at this morning is their devotion. 
how they're spoken of as being devout. Look in Acts chapter 10. Back a few chapters in Acts chapter 10. Besides the centurion that was there at, at our Lord's death, this centurion is probably the most famous. One or two, those, those are probably in the, in the top two here. But this is a centurion named Cornelius. You probably remember him. He's prominent here in the book of Acts, chapter 10. Very pivotal moment that takes place here in chapter 10. But look what's said here of, of Cornelius here in chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. Now there's a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. There's our word. What does that mean? It means that not only was Cornelius a centurion, but it seems that he was a, a senior centurion. That he was not only in over a few hundred or a hundred men, but probably several hundred men over the, uh, over the cohort, which we might term in, in modern terms a battalion. So it's more than just a hundred men. So this was a senior officer in the Roman army. And look what it says there in verse 2. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people, and prayed to God continually. That was a devout man, wasn't it? Spoken of very highly here. Over in verse 22, it says there, And they, and they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man. This is describing Cornelius. A righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by holy angels to send for you to come to his house and hear a message by you. Remember the events here that, that Peter's going to go to uh, Cornelius' house and he's going to wind up telling them about Jesus Christ. We have... These men that are listed here, we're going to talk a little bit more here about Cornelius, but I want to recap and, and, and think about something. What were these men lacking? We have, as we just spelled out, we have faithful men. They're respectful. They're honorable. They're devout. So what was it that was lacking in their life? With, back with Cornelius. God even heard Cornelius' prayers. Look in, back in chapter 10 and verse 3. It says here about Cornelius, About the ninth hour of the day he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come to him and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze upon him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. See, it's not only that that Cornelius was a devout man, and the things that he did in honoring God, but they came up to God. He heard them. He heard his prayers. The alms that he were, was giving on the account of the Jewish people, he recognized that. He goes on to, to, to tell us how, how Cornelius obeyed God. The angel said to send for Peter, and, and he's going to come and, and, and tell you this, and that's exactly what Cornelius did. If you look down at verse 30, so he, he's, he's brought his household in to hear what Peter's had to say. Verse 30 says, And Cornelius said, Four days ago in this hour I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. 
Send therefore to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. And so I sent to you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here, present before God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. See, the, the angel told him to send for Peter. That's exactly what he's done. And now he said, okay, we're here to hear what you have to say. That's a devout man, isn't it? That's a righteous man. That's a man who's obeying God in his life. But there was something still lacking. Look over in verse 44. This is after Peter has told them about, about Jesus Christ and who he was and how that, uh, that he has, has come for salvation and, and, and Peter has recognized that it's salvation for the Gentiles as well. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers, when they had come to Peter, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. Remember how in Acts chapter 2, when they were gathered there together, the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, and they were able to, to then go out into the world and to proclaim the gospel to the Jew first. Now the recognition is that that same message is going out to the Gentiles also. So Cornelius was pivotal in, the, in God's plan of having the gospel go to the Gentiles so they can be reconciled, brought in together, one man, as Paul writes about in Ephesians. But they were still lacking something. Verse 46 they were hearing uh, and amazed at the speaking and tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for those who have been baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? You see, in all of this and all that's going on, even in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, there was something still lacking. And what was lacking was the same thing that each and every one of us was lacking at some point in our life. And they were lacking the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. Look in verse 48. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. You see, as devout as a man uh, as devout a man as Cornelius was, and even with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on this household, when there's the recognition that the gospel is available to the Gentiles also, they still lack something. They still lack being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so Peter ordered that they be baptized. And so we don't know the, 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 the outcome of these other centurions that we have talked about. That's all we know about those other examples that we've read. We see the respect and the honor and the, the sense of duty and the faithfulness and the devotion that they all displayed. But it's only here in Cornelius that we see the, the rest of the story. Cornelius was baptized. And he was made a part of the Lord's church. Because we know that that's exactly what happens. And they had, once they were baptized, then they were added to the church by God. And they became a part of the kingdom. In Galatians chapter 3, Verse 27 says, For all of you who have been baptized into Christ 
have clothed yourself with Christ. Other translations say have put on Christ. Those who have been baptized. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So as different, uh, as apart in worlds as the Gentiles were from, from the Jews, Jesus ushered in and indeed delivered to the Gentiles the chance for salvation. And Cornelius was available for that. He was a devout man. He gave alms. He prayed to God, and God heard his prayers, but he was still lacking that one thing, and that is being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You are all one in Jesus Christ. Let's say one more thing about this one. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, Paul speaks of several ones. He says there, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were all called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father who is, uh, who is over all and through all and in all. So the unity here mustn't be overlooked. Paul says that you who have been, have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, and you have become one in Jesus Christ. And I also recognize this here in Ephesians 4 that there is but one body. And that's referring to the church. You see, we are, when we are baptized, God adds us to the church. But Scripture only speaks of one church. That's the Lord's body. Just as there's one spirit, one hope for your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And we need to recognize that the unity and the, and the oneness that's expressed in Scripture. These centurions, the, the, the example and the fine example that they that they, they show in their character doesn't qualify them for salvation except through the one baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. And through that, we all uh, have access to the kingdom. So, in pulling all that together and considering all of these things, what is it that you might still be lacking? Are you of good character? Do you pray? Do you give alms? Our, we would call that, you know, charity or giving back to the church. Are you doing those things but yet are not baptized with the Lord's baptism? If you aren't, you're still lacking. You're like Cornelius. Cornelius was a good man and recognized what was at his house was the will of God. And he was there and he was listening to what Peter had to say. And at the end of all that, Peter ordered them to be baptized. It might still be that that you're lacking in your life. If you are lacking that, I would encourage you to make the necessary changes. To make sure that you are indeed a partaker of the kingdom through the Lord's baptism. And can be added to the church by the Lord. And can serve him in sincerity and faithfulness and honor and respect like we see these men in their everyday lives. We can learn a lot from these. But we also learn that it takes the recognition of who Jesus Christ is 
and following through with that and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, I would encourage you to do so. If as a child of God, you are not living the life that you ought to be living in honor and respect and duty to our Lord, I would encourage you to make that change as well. Whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.